Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Papa. I'm alone right here. I'll just me and Julio. Say hi, Julio. Julio doesn't talk. Oh, there he goes. Uh, we're excited to launch the Impact Real Estate Podcast Summer Series, where we bring back some of our favorite interviews from the previous iteration of this podcast. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reintroducing you to some of the titans of our industry with the hope that their stories will continue to impact all of you. As always, any love you can send the podcast via like, share, comment, or review across iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or the jacksonlucas.com website is always appreciated. For now, thanks for tuning in and have a great summer. Today, we have a very special guest, John Williams, president of Avanath Capital Management. How are you, John? Great, great. Thanks, Chris. Nice to chat with you. Thanks for being here. Uh, where are you situated or hunkered down right now? I am hunkered down in Manhattan Beach, California, so I don't get a lot of sympathy for that. And I'm actually <laughs> out over the ocean as we speak. Um, very nice. So it's a little hazy here, but it only clears up in the afternoon. I uh, I did an Airbnb in, in Manhattan Beach once, like maybe like a year ago. I love that town. Yeah, it's a great town. It actually fits well for quarantine because you can, oddly for California, you can walk everywhere. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, I am in San Carlos, California, up in Northern California. And we first met uh, when you were in San Francisco, correct? And that yeah, was, years ago when I was with Carmel Partners. With Carmel, yeah. Uh, and now... Can you tell me, tell me, tell us about Avanath? Yeah. So we are one of the larger uh, institutional funds in the United States that specialize in uh, owning affordable housing in the United States. Um, and when we say affordable, we actually truly mean affordable housing, sort of capital A affordable. And that would be assets that are either income restricted or uh, rent restricted in high cost areas across the US. And it's kind of really mostly the coast from Seattle down to San Diego, New York City down to um, Orlando, Florida, or actually down all the way down to Fort Lauderdale. And we've been, the firm was started by Daryl Carter in 2008, well before any institutional capital has, um, you know, sort of hit the, um, you know, the institutional capital was was integrated into into affordable housing, and, and not not that affordable housing always had been a problem, but a lot of people it wasn't recognized then. Obviously, it's mm -hmm. very much recognized today. So we built a portfolio up using institutional capital, primarily from U.S. pension funds, uh, European pension funds, family offices, foundations, and endowments of two billion dollars. We have eighty properties across the United States, about ten thousand units. We're fully integrated and have our, have our own property management firm. So we've got about 350 people in the company, wow. uh, obviously spread out all over the United States. Headquarters in Irvine, California. We have a regional office in Chicago and a regional office in Washington, D.C. area. And um, as, one, as I said, we're in... You know, we were early, it's interesting, people say to me, gosh, you guys figured this out. There's all this emphasis on affordable housing and ESG and social impact investing. I mean, we've been 
it for 14 years. So we were really a first mover in this space. And um, now all of a sudden we're the, the prettiest gal at the prom. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of hard work to convince institutional capital that A, obviously there was a definitive need to own affordable housing. B, that you can create value for the residents and value for the investors, which we have. And we've had some um, pretty good exits and pretty good wins for our investors to date. So we, um, you know, we've really returned probably, you know, what uh, above we've, we've had returns that were above expectations. That's great. It's a good thing. That's awesome. And so what is the difference? I mean, I know the difference between affordable and non-affordable housing, but as far as like operating a company in affordable housing and investing in affordable housing, what's the, like for people who don't really know, like what's the major difference in. Yeah. I mean, you know, oddly, you, we say this a lot, Chris, you know, because we, as you can imagine when we're talking to investors, you know, even very astute investors in the United States, big, big state pension funds, or even in Europe or Asia, when we're educating people of it, um, most of it's affordable housing 101 in the beginning. They yeah. just, they obviously every I, just backtrack. I've never gone to a meeting where someone has said, "Wow, so there's a need for affordable housing in the United States." <laughs> no one ever says that. So the needs never need the need never has to be explained. It's just sort of the, you know, how we execute and how we create value. But, um, you know, I think the the easy definition is you know we're buying assets that were originally built with tax credits under what was called, and it's actually, it's called the Low Income Tax Credit Act, um, which started in 1994, which builds about 100,000 of these units a year. And they're, it's slated to, to induce developers um, to build affordable housing in high cost areas in the United States where there's a definitive need and there's a lack of it, that's near transportation, near jobs, um, induces the, the the developer to make sure it fits into the neighborhood so it's not it doesn't look like old soviet style housing or like <laughs> yeah so i mean the easy definition is it's slated for people that make 60 percent of area medium income um in high cost areas so uh, oddly what you'd find is you know in los angeles san francisco um you know seattle our residents make 50 to sixty thousand dollars a year mm -hmm. They have a good job. They they make they have a good living. They just happen to live in Seattle, you know. And you know, someone making fifty thousand dollars a year in Seattle can't afford three thousand dollar rents. They can't afford our rents, which are, you know, kind of pegged to a third of their income uh, of a thousand dollars. And the product's built very well. Um, and because there's usually to get approval for these assets, there's usually ten applications. For every one approval so it's best in class gets approved um and it's built with tax credits that usually the developer partners up with a bank and um they they take the tax credits the developer gets a fee and they own them for about 10 years the tax credits expire after 10 years and that's when we buy them we buy them in kind of year 11 12. generally the regulatory agreements the rent agreements are, are in place for another 25 to 50 years so the, our play is not a play where we're buying these and marking the market. We're, we run them as affordable assets. We have to, and, uh, you know, by law and, um, you know, we have to buy by all the regulatory agreements. That's kind of where the difference is, is we always mm -hmm. say 
95% of what we do is managing is, you know, we own, run, improve apartments, you know, and these would be considered kind of, you know, B class to B plus apartments in B plus to A, A neighborhoods. So, you know, that, that math works. People get that. The hard part is there's a lot of compliance. We have, you know, of our 80 properties, we probably have, you know, have to abide by 2X of that, 160 regulatory agreements, either by the state, the county, the city, and whatnot. And that says, that designates to you who qualifies, you know, what the income levels are, um, how often, you know, whether you get audited or not by the local housing authority that you're applying by the regulatory agreements. So the only difference is we have a pretty robust compliance department of 16 people that do pre-audits that regularly audit our property because we get audited too um, by the local authorities to make sure we're abiding by everything. And, you know, obviously when you're dealing with HUD, you're dealing with the state states, you're dealing with local cities, you're dealing with counties, you know, it's complicated and it's never easy. And we have to have people that really understand it and know how to, know, you know, perform and, and pass these. And we, we have to sell our ratings from HUD and, and local housing authorities. So we're kind of one of the preferred owners of this product in the United States. It's interesting. It's a really, it's a really, um, it's an, it's an interesting about the product is if you think about it, if I said to you, you, you know, it's like you said, you didn't know a lot about it. If I said, Hey, there's this product in the United States that induces, it gives tax credits to uh, developers and banks to build affordable housing in the city of San Francisco. And it's slated for people that make 60% of very medium income. And the product has to look like everything else. And, you know, has to be built with amenities and, you know, like swimming pools and gyms. And you'd say, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, yeah. how, how did I, how come I never heard of this before? And we we say one thing is they only build a hundred thousand of these units a year over the last number of years. So there's only about 2 million units. Secondly, it's been relatively scandal free. I mean, it, you know, it works. It's one of the, mm. one of the federal projects that actually does what it's supposed to do. And it works well when it's in, it's in, it's highly popular. Um, so it's just not enough of it. It it should be 10 X bigger than it is. And that would probably not even begin to solve the problem. Is there a reason why it's not? I think it's just because, um, it, oddly enough, it gets support from both sides of the aisle, because if you think about it, you're reducing, you're privatizing affordable housing. You're giving tax credits to developers who, you know, we don't have to say who's red and blue, but we can figure that out. Um, so it induces developers to build and then it, it, uh, you know, it caters to people that make fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year. So you can figure out who the the side of the aisles everybody's on. Uh, so it actually works. It's just it's you know it's just hard to get anything expanded um, in the federal government. Although this is actually one of the more favorite project uh, favored um, programs out there. I mean, I would say interesting when we talk to our European investors and they originally come out and, ch- and chat with us about it they'll say, hey, look, we don't want mean to be disingenuous here, but this we're just surprised that the U.S. has a, a really good program like this because this actually is really good and it works. We're mm. just surprised. No one in Europe even believes that anything like that exists in the United States. So um, that's a little bit of our education. I think to your point, what's the difference is, it's interesting, you know, we have probably a higher cost because we have a lot of compliance we have to deal with. Mm. 
Um, the benefit we get on the other side is we're basically, you know, of our 10,000 units, even today, today's market, we're 100% occupied with a wait list on most properties. And our turnover is about 20% a year where market rate property turns over, you know, 50 to 60% a year. Our average stay is about six years with our residents and market rates stays about 14 months. So we have very, today it's become very popular because we have a very durable defensive strategy of investing in the U.S. Um, that that obviously is, has elevated itself and has become very interesting to investors. When you walk, when you go into a new city, like in Seattle or something, do you have to start, like, can you just buy a property there? Do you have to like go talk to the local yeah. government? Oh, go that's, talk a good, that's an excellent question. Um, you do, you have to go get approved. So um, to be an owner and a manager, and that could take anywhere from six to nine months. Um, so that is kind of an advantage that we have. And then one of the moats we have is that we're approved in kind of all our 80 locations. And, um, and I said, we probably have 160 approvals in place across the United States by different regulatory agreements. So although this product is becoming a little more popular, um, we had an asset last year, we, we bought in Austin. So if I told you, Hey, we're buying an asset in Austin, right near the university, you know, Austin's obviously gangbusters. Housing is getting expensive. This caters to people that make 60% of AMI, so kind of 40 to 50,000 a year. You know, you think, wow, I could that that sounds good to me. That that'll work. Um, and so it was put on the market and was bid. There were probably 10 bidders on the project. Um, but the seller stipulated, they put it out in the market in October, and the seller stipulated that it had to close by the year end. We weren't the highest bidder, although we were the only ones previously approved by the mm. state of Texas. So they didn't, they weren't happy that we weren't the highest price. They <laughs> did it to us because they gave it to us because they we had a higher likelihood of closing. And we did. We closed on December 28th. So they made the right decision. Um, and the, everybody else would have taken them six to nine months to close. Makes so. sense. And so now that, you're, that's, you're the, yes, you're the a barrier. that's a barrier of entry we have. You gotcha. Know, we've solved so you, it. So you're the president. That's a big title. <laughs> yeah. How, how'd you get there? Did you did you grow up in uh, and want to be uh, in affordable housing? Can you take us back a little bit and kind of tell us yeah, about how you I grew mean, up? I, in... You and I have not. No, I mean it's interesting. We, my business partner is Daryl Carter, who founded the firm. Um, he, I mean, he really sort of secured his journey that about it, but, uh, he was my first boss coming out of school. So oh, really? All at Westinghouse credit corporation, which a lot of people won't remember, but it was sort of the GE credit version of the Westinghouse owned. And oddly enough, there's a lot of prominent people in the industry now, head of Marriott, um, uh, head of digital realty. Uh, they all came, we were all together. Um, at Westinghouse Credit, and uh, Daryl was my boss. Uh, he left to start a predecessor firm, um, and I took over his job and had that for a number of years. Then Westinghouse eventually got sold to uh, Morgan Stanley um, mm. in the early 90s. And so then I left with a couple more, actually, ex-Morgan Stanley guys and started a, what, what then was not, you know, nowadays it's so prolific, but 
uh, it was an opportunity. It was basically an uh, opportunity fund that specialized in value-added apartments. Mm-hmm. That sounds so rope now, but in yeah. the that was that was kind of we, they said, "No, what are you guys going to do? You're going to buy <laughs> properties and put you know a couple thousand dollars in and take them to kind of a B property and you know increase rents two to three hundred dollars." Oddly enough, that was innovative back then. Um, <laughs> so we did it. We wrought, We raised money from foundation from some endowments, uh, a lot of some Ivy League endowments, and edu- executed that. I we ended up investing with um, uh, Carmel Partners on one of their JVs, and um, I met Ron Zeff, the Carmel Partners, through that process and then eventually went over to Carmel and and, and started up their fund business because at the time Carmel was only investing, you know, kind of doing ventures. So we built, I mean, I think they're up to fund eight now. Um, so uh, did that with them and started that program up to fund four. And then Daryl left, sold his company and then um really what what happened was saw that there was a lack of institutional capital he he, he owned a fannie mae freddie mac lending operation mm-hmm. and was lending into the affordable housing and noticed that there was sort of a, a gap period you know after the developers owned these projects and the tax credits expired in year 10 there wasn't an influ- there wasn't really some investment and in capital on those properties after the 10th year because sort of the benefits were gone. However, the the regulatory agreements were still in place. And he thought there was a and there wasn't a lot of institutional money looking at that. So he so oddly enough, I'd been offered a job with somebody, kind of a big job. Uh, and I Daryl was always a mentor and I sat down with him. I said, hey, I'm thinking about going and going with these guys. It was a fund run, run by a hedge fund group. And he said, they approached me and he said, um, well, wait, 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 well, why would you do that? Why don't you just come with me? Let's you and I start this. Cause I have this idea about starting an affordable housing group. And I think in between you and I, we have enough institutional contacts. I think we can bring money in into this space. So I, you know, I didn't, I would say I had the passion for affordable housing and, and that as Daryl has had, but I could see that there was a lack of, there, there was an opportunity there and there was an opportunity to do a lot of things, help, help drive value for residents and help drive value for, for investors. And so that, that was uh, 10 years ago. Wow. That's great. I'm seeing a lot of, not a lot, there's more, you know, funds being raised, like more firms being started in the affordable space. Uh, it sounds like it's becoming a little more of a sexier asset. Is that, um, why do you think that is? And like, what do you have? A, do you have a hard time attracting talent to that space? Because I, I, I just don't think a lot of people know exactly what it, it is. I mean, I think when you talk to yeah. the person on the street, they think it's like a nonprofit or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, we were one of the first. We were one of the first movers in this. Um, you know, I mean, I uh, hear two, two, two things on that. Is one is um, that they're, um, they're. Um, the reason why there's a lot more interest is that um, that this space, uh, obviously people are looking at it, that it's a very defensive strategy 
of investing it late stage in U.S. Obviously, mm-hmm. faster than we thought we would. Um, it's very durable. There's always a need. There's a lack of you know we're in a we're in a business where explain to people. Someone says, "Gee, how do you how do you guys create value in affordable housing?" And I said, "Okay, well, just take the word affordable out of that." And say, would you like to be in a business that has unlimited demand and very limited supply? <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. And I said, well, that's what that's a business we're in. And um, so people get it. People say, okay, I get that. Yeah. And um, and there's no nothing in the future that looks like any of this is going to get solved. So um, so that uh, that that's. You know, that's part of the explanation. I think the other thing is, you know, so so we have the defensive strategy of it and the need and this lack of supply. The other thing is you have a lot more, especially in U.S. and European pension funds, push to do more ESG investing. Mm. Investing. And we're we're the real deal. We've got it. Uh, we also fit, you know, Daryl's African-American. He's one of the, you know, so we're one of the, he's majority owner of the firm. So, you know, we're the real deal. It's been around for, four, you know, for 14 years. Um, he, um, so that, that fits the ESG requirements and, 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 the, and the definitive need and, and all that. And I just think there's a better education of, of um, that you can actually create value for, for your investors in this space. We, we, as I said, we were one of the first movers there. So we've done it. I think uh, kind of your point of there's more capital coming in. I'd like to say we're probably um, subjected to our own success for that. You know, we, we were the, one of the first groups that brought money in and we've done well. We've done well for our investors. And I think there's a lot of follower on of that and say, wow, those guys did it. You know, if those two can do it. Certainly I could figure this out. <laughs> Uh, and we've had some great exits and we've exited to some very, you know, exited some of our portfolios to some very premier institutions. And, you know, we probably had one of the higher executions of a sale of affordable housing portfolio that did exceedingly well for our investors. Um, so I think that's, that's, I mean, that's it. That's one thing. So I think the other thing that we're a victim of our own success a bit is when we started this and we would go on investors, especially when we were out raising our first fund. Kind of what you were saying, we'd say, we'd explain how complicated it is, and you know how we know how to buy these assets, we know how to invest capital into them, we know how to uh, improve the properties, we know how to improve the rent rolls and, and cash flows and all that, um, and you know, we know how to handle the compliance. And they would say, "Hey, we get this. This is there's a lot of barrier of entries to get into this space. Um, that that's that's we you solved that, but how do you get out of this stuff? You know who." Mm you know yeah how do you who buys them from you so we solved that we were able to bring um some institutions into purchase and portfolios um that we actually continue to manage be the property manager but they're the owners um so the regulatory agreements and all you know we're all satisfied and stayed the same um i think drawing talent uh you know i just think you know especially with uh you know younger um you know, candidates, there's a, once again, there's a greater interest in um, ESG and social impact, you know, and there's a lot of interest. We get, we get a lot of inbound traffic of people saying, look, I, I, I may be able to go work for an investment banking firm and, you know, and do mergers and acquisitions that, you know, 
doesn't create any value except for the, the bank or the whatnot, but not for the world. And you, what you guys are doing is creating value for the, for the world too. So I, I want to be part of that. So I, especially in the younger group, and you would know this a little bit more because you're probably talking to a lot of young candidates, mm. you know, they're very socially conscious and, um, and they're, they're, colorblind, they're gender blind, they're everything. And, um, and they like the idea of being, you know, with a diverse, really a diverse company that has people of color, women, in senior management positions. Um, so we actually probably get best of class of people that, um, that are interested in, in, in impact and diversity. Yeah, that's great. And then as far as just explain to me, if you don't mind, like the tax, go back to like the investment strategy, like, but the tax credits expire, you said after 10 years? Yeah. So that's this when is you guys come in? Rate. Yeah. This is just a pure value play. We're buying these on cap rates. You know, mm -hmm. we can improve the properties. We can improve the cash flow by a number of things. Um, you know, what you find is in a, and obviously anyone that listens to this probably might be an affordable housing developer, so I don't want to be disingenuous to them, but what you find is a lot of these assets were bought kind of by disparate, were developed by disparate owners. One, one developer who gets a fee to develop it probably doesn't share much in the economics and the bank gets tax credits. So after 10 years, you know, when tax credits expire and there's no more fees, then there's non-interest in the property let's put it that way so um we have gone into properties that are 85 percent occupied in a market where it's head scratching we bought a property in boulder colorado that our rents were eleven hundred dollars and rents across the street were three thousand and it was 90 percent occupied we had it filled in one month um because the the owner was a luxury owner that had to build affordable housing in order to get approvals for other things, mm. his stepchild. So we didn't pay a lot of attention to it and a smaller deal it was only 70 units. So it was, you know, wasn't affecting the firm that much. Um, we've gone into assets where they haven't read the regulatory agreements correctly and weren't charging the correct rents and meaning that, you know, you could, they, they just hadn't moved the rents up and you can generally move rents every year on these assets as incomes increase. So they just manage the documents and didn't do that. I mean, we're not gonna go in and do, you know, headline risk, but as new people come in, uh, we'll move them up to the correct rent levels. Um, we bought assets that in California, if you partner up with a nonprofit um, in the state of Washington, state of Texas, state of Florida, if you have an affordable asset, you can apply for, for either, uh, you know, basically, uh, discounts on your real estate taxes. We bought assets where they never bothered doing that. Um, and that saves a lot of money. If you can have your real estate taxes by, you know, by 50%. Yeah. And they just never bothered doing it um, because they didn't participate. The manager didn't participate in the cash flow. So we really run these as a long-term owner. Then we also go in and we'll put, you know, value added, Situ we'll put in we'll put in LED lighting. We'll put in drought-resistant landscaping. We'll put in solar panels in some cases to, to to reduce common area utilities, but also the utilities 
for the residents, which is basically a raise for them, you know, because the utility costs go down. Um, and then we, you know, we run these and we run them 100%, basically 100% occupied with a wait list with a little turnover. And turnover costs a lot of money. So mm -hmm. that cash all goes back to the investor. And then we improve the property and we think that helps with the exit cap rates. You know, we'll improve the amenities. We'll put in, you know, we'll, we'll improve the amenities. We'll put in basketball courts. We'll put in, um, you know, we, we, a lot of, what we'll do a lot of times is partner up with a profit that'll come in and do Homer club for kids, dance classes, supervised basketball clinics to keep the kids occupied. Because if you think about it, and one reason why we have such a long residency term of our, of our residents is that mom and dad both work. Mm -hmm. They don't come home till six or seven o'clock. Kids, the school bus pulls up at three o'clock. So you have, you know, children that are basically unsupervised for three, four hours. And, you know, as we always say, hey, it doesn't matter what economic sector you're in. You know, if you live kids by themselves for three, four hours, whoever they are, chaos ensues, you know, yeah. I mean, landscaping gets ripped up, fence gets ripped up, you know, whatever. Um, so we activate these children and we'll, we'll partner up with a nonprofit. We'll run a homework club for kids. Uh, so they have somewhere to go. They get a snack. They play games. They do their homework. They get a check. It's very, very structured, very supervised. And there's a lot of things. One is hopefully improves those children's lives. They're doing better in school and, and the like. And they're also activated and socialized in, in, a, in a nice manner. Um, and then secondly, mom and dad get home at six or seven. Homework's all done. It's all yeah. checked. They, have, they get a list from the teacher that says, you know, Bobby did his reading assignment, his spelling assignment, his math assignment, da da da. So mom and dad, it's not this tension when people get home of like get your homework done and all that. So actually, the family can sit down, have a nice meal, read a story together, watch a movie together, because the homework's done, and they have they it improves family life. So you can imagine, Chris, if you're you know mom, if you're a working family, your children's hopefully doing better in school. To hopefully reduce tension at home a bit, you know, on homework, because it doesn't want again, it doesn't matter what economic sector you're in, that's always a problem, schoolwork. Um, they're getting something, an amenity that might, if you went in the open market, it might cost you two or three hundred bucks a week to pay for, you know, mm -hmm. basically one-on-one -on -one tutoring or, or group tutoring, excuse me. Um, and and so it, 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 it very much improves people's lives. And so they stay, they stay, they're great residents. They don't want to move because they say, how I, I can't duplicate this. This is, yeah. I, I'm getting so many economic benefits from this, this, uh, you know, this project that are complex that, um, I, I can't move. I, I can't do my life is going to regress. If I move. Yeah. This is really a benefit to my, to my family. So that's, well, that's the stickiness we create. So that, yeah, that's great. I mean, so it's a little more of a more comprehensive management program. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, we run a lot of programs and then we sort of tailor these programs to the residents about 20% of the assets, or excuse me, about 15% of the assets we own are seniors. So they're income restricted, age restricted. No, it's not congregate care. They're all, it's all independent living, but um, it's, um, so it's 
50, they're generally 55 plus in order to move into these projects in mm. the properties. So, um, so what we do for those, we'll partner up with the local healthcare in East coast. We partnered in Maryland. We partnered up with the university of Maryland medical center. And we cut, we outfit a room that's, that's Medicare compliant that they'll, the healthcare center will send over doctors and residents who will do diabetes testing, do heart monitoring, do nutrition classes, do um, some, you know, uh, physical, you know, we'll do water, you know, yoga, water aerobics and everything. And it's really a wellness program for seniors. Obviously, once again, does a lot of things, proves their lives. Also, we like, you know, we'd like to say there's an economic benefit because longer in their residence. They're not going for somewhere for long-term care because they've improved their health. Um, so um, that helps longevity in our properties there. It's a sense of community and, and obviously, you know, obviously helps, you know, gives, gives them a great feeling about living with in one of our complexes because not only they feel like they have a great high quality place to live, but they're getting benefits, you know, extra benefits for free. So you're helping out your tenants and getting returns for your investors. Sounds yeah. like a great deal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I, it's been amazing to learn more about you and, 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 and what you're doing in, uh, with the Vanith. So I'm going to, are you ready for the hot seat? Sure. The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com, k-k-r-e-s-e-t.com. These are five questions I ask all of my guests. Um, so question number one, any books you recommend, whether it's on affordable housing, real estate, life, business, whatever you pick? Uh, you know, uh, um, I, you know, I, I'm a big but I'm still going through, I'm actually going through this the second time. Um, a big history. So I'm going through the, um, basically the original uh, Winston Churchill biography um, wow. that uh, in the author's name escapes me, but I can actually tell you why I'm looking up because I have it on my, I have it everywhere because the darn <laughs> Is it long? Is it a long book? Well, there's three of them. They're all a thousand pages. So uh, love, love that because I just find him one of the most fascinating um, people in society, in, in in the world, and was a light and, and was a real deal and changed. It's called The Last Lion, and it's uh, William Manchester, um, and there's three volumes of it. And so I've actually read it once and reading it again. Nice it's life lessons for him because he was a thought of as a failure, and you know he was sort of a 
dumpy kid and, you know, parents were, you know, one was a diplomat and one was, a, her mother was a big bon vivant socialite. And, you know, back in UK at that time, you'd send your children away to to boarding school at age seven and you wouldn't see him to and he survived all that and, and you know and he had and i think it's really a great lesson of life is he had so many trials and tribulations you know probably was almost killed about 10 times in wars um in the boer war and also uh had a dunkirk had a terrible uh no no that was not not dunkirk but it was over by the um turkey had a terrible situation as a leader and almost wiped out his whole battalion that ended up being, you know, one probably one of the greatest and most influential members of, of the world uh, and shaped the world. So it's, it's, there's a lot of setbacks in his life, but he conquered them all. Awesome. Enjoy that. Any, uh, I usually ask podcast recommendations, but have you, since we're in still in COVID, I'm looking for some new TV, TV shows to watch. Yeah. Are, you, are you binging on anything? Any good shows? Uh, you know, what, what do we have? I just signed up for Disney Plus. Not that I was that interested because I wanted to see Hamilton. Yeah. So I, I got that. Uh, and, you know, I, I have invested in so many and I just never completed them all. I killed <laughs> if I was watching for a little bit. Um, and then the other one, what's called The Heist, is it's a Spanish one that's on Netflix that I've got about halfway through that one. That's, uh, that's kind of interesting. You know what we've been doing lately is that we're not staying up late. We've been taping the, all the night, night, nightly talk shows and then watching them early in the evening, the next day. Because you get, now, nowadays, I always find that that's our political commentaries nowadays, yeah. you know, from either Colbert or Fallon or uh, Jimmy Kimball, you get, I won't say it's unvarnished because I will say it's obviously slanted to what their beliefs are, but uh, I, I've been, we, we watch those in the early evening. Just to and they're see. getting creative with, you know, everyone's being at home and stuff. So it's, yeah. yeah. Cool. And I never, I, you know, to that point, you're right. I probably never watched them at all. And now we kind of took it on. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're making dinner. What do you like to do outside of work? You know, uh, was a very avid skier till I screwed up both of my knees. So I'm going through rehab on my one knee right now. Um, you know, and I live by the beach, so that's always nice. So, um, you know, bike ride and do, I can't run anymore. I used to run a lot, but now that my knee screwed up, um, but do a lot of walking. And then probably like everybody too, uh, I did what probably a lot of people did. I bought, bought a Peloton. Nice. That, but you know what I found that the extra benefit from the Peloton that I really like is, I hadn't realized this. Um, it's not really about biking. They they have a thousand classes on yoga, on meditation, on strength class, on course. So, and and what I like about it is you can sort of tailor to the time. Mm -hmm. So you, I want to do a ten minute strength class or ten minute core class, and they have so you watch it and do it and. You feel like you did something, you know? Yeah, I've heard nothing but rave reviews about Peloton. I'm not sure 10 minutes helped you that much, but at least you can sort of check that box that day and feel like you yeah. did. At least you feel good. Yeah, it's good for your brain yeah. too, right? Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Yeah, that's a good question. I think about that a lot. I'd say, you know, have an open mind and, and, and really 
don't feel like you're you're slated into something like you like you you sort of said in the beginning. Did I ever think I was going to be you know in affordable housing? Um, no, not at all. I was thought I would be an investment banker or something along those lines. So um, I, but you know, I listened and I listened to, to mentors and and grabbed and took some risks and grabbed opportunities when. You know, I wasn't really sure it was going to be successful. And that sort of like gets back to the William, the, the um, Winston Churchill idea of, you know, you you, you got to try a lot of things and you hope that two of them work. And yeah. <laughs> more than that. So I've been blessed. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I am a recruiter. So what, what sort of characteristics do you look for when you're hiring people? It doesn't have to be specifically like yeah. hard skills. It's just kind of the, the kind of the people you like to work with. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, we like people that, you know, when we have a mirror of great universities and even local, you know, what we've been doing lately is this is even more recruiting within. We've been trying to open channels up in the company. And I, I guess this pertains to even outside candidates. That is somewhat of a crossover. So, because we have all these, we have great talent in the company and this probably unfortunately for you cuts you out of something, but <laughs> position of a acquisition analyst. And I, and I, by, by the way, I have to say this idea really came from Daryl Carter and in, he has a great analogy of this. And he said, look, we can go out and we, there's a million young, especially young men, um, because every kid is so funny. Every guy we have in acquisitions, all the young guys are all like six, five ex volleyball players at, you know, University of Michigan or, or San Diego uh, State or something. So, uh, and that was sort of every, you know, if you look at any acquisition staff, you get a lot of, you know, young men that, you know, are outgoing and athletic and, you know, can yeah. brokers and all that. And one of Daryl's ideas, he said, you know, who knows more about the property? to write a property than somebody that's in property management, you know, because they deal with this, you know, if you think about it, our property managers, some of them are asset, you know, asset managing a $90 million project. Yeah. And so we had one asset that we bought that was, we bought for around 60 million and, you know, because of a lot of luck where it is located and rents, you know, steadily increased and, um, we put some investment in the, in the asset, you know, it's now valued at 90 million. And he's Daryl said, look, the woman that ran that our young guys, none of those guys have ever had that success. Yeah. A property for 60 million converted to 90 million in, you know, four years. Um, but she did, she knew, she knew what, how to operate it. She knew what the operating expenses are. She knew, you know, all of the idiosyncrasies that you would, as you, maybe you're doing due diligence on a new asset. So we actually brought her over to acquisitions to, to work on new assets and due diligence and whatnot. And it's great, been a great, um, new, new, you know, sort of new view of how to look at an asset. And so if somebody says, Hey, we're going to buy this asset and, we need staffing of five people. She can say, you know what, guys, it's going to take you six or seven people. I know how this works. You know, you you have to have someone on the weekends. You have to have a porter come in and help clean up um, over weekends and pick up trash and all this. So you have your salaries all wrong. Um, and so it brings a fresh new element to it. So we add some more cross. I guess the best thing is cross fertilization. 
Yeah, that's, I don't think I know any other firms that do that. So that's, that's awesome. And that's, and that's great for people attracting great talent too. Maybe, right. you know, property yeah, managers yeah. never get to be an acquisition. So yep. they can, and, and, you know, and I have to say one of it was even, you know, and luckily we think we're on the curve a little bit more than this, just because, you know, we were always very well diverse. Um, but during a comp, during a, corporate survey we did about a year ago, someone wrote and said, wow, the acquisitions group's like a boys club. And, you know, you might, you could easily laugh that off. And then I would say for our management committee, we took it to heart. We said, you know, if people are saying that, if one person says that, that means 25 people think that. And so maybe we should think about this and, and really diversifying within, not just, you know, Diverse, yeah. different sectors in the company so that's what we've been striving awesome john good seeing you thank you for your time yeah thank you chris thanks 